All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 175. Jason Lingren is with me as usual, and Lindsay Charmaine, uh, who is also has been in the education system, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about. It seems like education and the human intellect in general are in free fall right now. And how many times do you hear someone talking about the movie Idiocracy saying that's exactly where we're headed? We're like, we're knocking on Idiocracy's door here. Kind of feels that way, doesn't it? Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason and Lindsay and take apart the modern education system. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 175. Jason Lingard is with me as usual. And we have Lindsay Sharman. Uh, today, we're going to be covering education in general. Um, and some of the last episodes we've just produced, um, actually, Jason, maybe you can jump in here. Uh, what was the search term uh, that you offered up in one of the previous episodes that shows the curriculum uh, being well advanced of where we currently are when a, when a young person leaves high school? Do you remember the search term for that? High school test, eighth grade, and you can put in 1800s or early 1900s. There's a couple of them that will come up, and you will see massive differences on what people had to know back then compared to today. Now it's very agriculturally oriented, but still, the point is, you will see just what an eighth grader had to know and understand compared to the Winnie the Pooh level stuff that we're doing today. Right. I think the first time that I realized what was going on in such a you know, kind of in your face way, someone sent me an actual curriculum. And if I recall, it was in the middle school area, I think around seventh grade, but it showed the exit test. Um, and the math alone was well beyond what a high school senior would be doing um, now. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. And it's fine. Good morning here. I think we're going to have a little bit of rain, but other than that, it's a lovely Louisiana morning. How about you? That's been strange, man. I cannot remember an August that was so mild and low humidity. Uh, it's almost like it's fall already, but I think that's going to change. But at any rate, what do we have for the intro? I know you've got a couple things. Um, I had some medical stuff done, so I haven't been out anywhere. Right. We have two events that are very important we want you to know about. The first one is being called Shoot the Moon New York City. And this is going to be on October 20th, 2019, 1 p.m. to 7 p.m., the location is 25 West 31st Street, 3rd floor. What we're going to be doing is having a, almost a mini-conference, you could say. The guests are going to be John Brisson, Wayne McCroy, Mark Devlin. Then we're going to show Shoot the Moon and do a Q&A session with myself, possibly with Crow as well, in person. And if Crow can't make it, we're going to Skype him in regardless. So we're having a full mini-conference that's going to take up the whole day. And as of right now, the early bird tickets are $30. You can go to eventbrite.com to find that. We've already sold 14 tickets. Our friend Billy Ray Valentine from The Infinite Fringe, who put all this together, he let me know this morning that's where we're at. So that's one day we sold 14 tickets. I don't know if that's great or not. Sounds pretty good to me. But we're hoping for at least 50. And if we get any more than that, apparently the room can hold more. We'll see. Right. So so basically, I think we're going to be aiming at about filling 50 chairs. Um, and there actually is a good chance that I will be there in person for the first time. Um, but I was going to say the, the ticket price is just caught covering the venue. Um, this is not really a, a profit-making venture, as no. you can tell by the size of it, um, just to make it clear. But you, you had another thing, I think? Yes. I am going to be doing a presentation at the Flat Earth International Conference 2019 in Dallas, Texas. That is a weekend-long event, 
Mine is going to be on November 15th from 1.30 p.m. to 2.20 p.m. And I'm going to be doing a presentation on the social engineering of our worldview. I think the Flat Earth folks will really like what I'm going to present. And my idea that I've already almost completed already, actually, it's, it's almost completely written, is to do a Crow Triple Seven radio episode live, but also interactive. If anybody wants to discuss points along the way, I'm going to allow the audience to discuss things as well. And I'm also going to use imagery to reinforce what we're going over. So hopefully you folks will come out to that as well. I'd love to meet you. Yeah, it's a bit astonishing how much FE content is being removed online. Um, very, very shocking the age that we live in where things like that are being removed from public discussion and public discourse. But anyhow, um, why don't you go ahead and get Lindsay in and let's jump into this thing. So Lindsay does a program called Rogue Ways and she's doing a lot of interesting topics and she's friends with myself and my girlfriend Rose and Crow and I have actually been with her on her program before. So Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to be jumping into education here, um, and there's good reason for it. Uh, any any people, you know, let me go at this a different way. In any given week, when I'm answering emails from Crow Triple Seven Radio on any given day, I see probably minimally a hundred um, emails sent. There are so many people concerned with public school curriculums, and there are a ton of people uh, homeschooling at this point. And I get emails all the time asking for um, how to source this, that, or the other thing that we covered online plus everybody knows jason homeschools his daughter but we've kind of reached a point where it's pretty clear um, that the average high school student leaving high school is not getting the education they once got but jason we got the list why don't you start us in right so one of the big reasons we wanted to have Lindsay on is that she did indeed work in the public school system as an instructor so Lindsay, why don't you go ahead and start going through your history here so people can understand where you're coming from and really know why you think the way you do know about things. Sure. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher from a pretty young age, and so I went straight into college with that intention to become a teacher. I knew that the system was um, a dark and evil place, basically, and that it wasn't doing a good job of educating. But at the very least, my hope was that I could maybe help some people learn, but um, also maybe keep them from some of the worst abuses of the system. And so I got into a pretty prestigious uh, master's program to get my master's in teaching. And um, I went on, I had taught a little bit in college while I was there. And then I went on to teach middle school and high school mostly over the next 10 years. And then I've also taught in private schools here and there. I've also taught in other countries in Turkey and Bahrain, um, as well as different settings in the uh, United States. So I have kind of a, a broad range of experience in all types of students of all ages. And despite all of that, or maybe because of all of that, I recently actually left teaching in June because it was just, it's too much. It really sucks everything out of you that is even possible. And I think that that's by design. I think they don't want healthy, happy teachers that are ready and able to give students the best that they can. I don't, I think that that's intentional. Well, I, I want to ask Lindsay, um, you've been abroad. Uh, what do you, what do you notice? How, how, how does what's going on in education stack up against what's going on here in the United States? You mentioned Bahrain in a couple places. Um, does it feel like those places are level with us or ahead of us? What was your sense of things? 
It's an interesting sort of mix because what I would call really good, solid, actual education that helps students think um, and grow as thinkers is not present anywhere I've been. Um, but if you just look at the content of kind of the the level of skill, you might, it, it looks on the surface like the level of skill is higher in other countries. Um, but when you get down to it, what students are really being asked to do is memorize and regurgitate, which I don't think is, it, it can be handy in some in some scenarios to, to memorize something, right? Like the faster you can do your times tables, the easier it's going to be to do the higher levels of math. So it's not a horrible skill and it's not, it has its place, but for the most part, that was the type of learning that they were doing overseas, even though the content they were being asked to digest was was higher, a higher level. It's funny you should say that, you know, it's true. At the foundation of learning, um, there's gonna be memorization. Um, right. which which I don't consider necessarily as learning. Uh, that's a foundation to learning to me. It's like you said, you got to know your times tables. You've got to understand basic things. You've got to know how to spell. These are memorization things mostly. But on top of that, um, there has to be learning. And for me personally, uh, I realized I don't even, I can't, I can't even, it's been so long. I can't remember when I realized that basically what I was doing in school was memorizing and regurgitating. Um, and later in life, I realized that most of the education that I have came from my father or from me reading, basically. And so it doesn't surprise me to hear that the other countries um, have an edge up. But I'll tell you another thing. I think part of that may have to do with diet um, because almost every other country that I look at uh, is eating better food than we are at this point. What do you think about that? Yeah, there definitely was a lot better food in Turkey than we have here. A lot cheaper, healthier food more consistently throughout the year really, really affordable to eat healthy there. Um, so that could definitely have something to do with it. And I do have a, an experience in, in China as well. I went there twice as a um, just a vacation for 10 days, but both times it was a vacation oriented towards teachers. And so I was able to get into a few different types of schools in China and see kind of probably what they wanted me to see. But it was also very clear to me that the way that they're doing education there is also the same sort of rote memorization, regurgitation, but it's also down to the every single movement that a child is making in a classroom is dictated and scripted and in unison with their peers. So they're doing a lot of choral recitation. They're doing even in art, they're doing the same brush stroke at the same time, and they're all doing the exact same picture, which they're copying from a source. Um, so it's really rigid and it's really it's much more clear the sort of control that they're trying to instill in, in their kids there. So there might also be an aspect of a higher sort of content level at some point there. Um, but the way that they're doing it, I don't think can be considered the way to create a healthy mind that can tackle sort of any problem. Well, what's funny about the Asian nations is teamwork is a big part of it. doesn't matter almost which Asian nation you go to. Compared to the United States, the teamwork will be a lot. Mm -hmm. So when you get to a place like China where it's kind of so so intensely controlled, um, it's it's a bit shocking, I think, for someone from our part of the world to see it first because it seems very rigid. But Jason and I did a couple episodes on artificial intelligence, and one of the things we covered was the uh, 
the social rating score that's been implemented in China mm. since been ported out into Australia. But the reason I'm bringing this up is in the research, I found that in grade school, they're already introducing artificial intelligence, um, the, wow. the basics for artificial intelligence to those children. Um, oh, and by the way, this is a kind of a tangent. Um, I just received an article day before yesterday, apparently in Silicon Valley, where all this started, the social rating and everything else. Um, there is now a company working on replicating that system. So what what yeah. you're reporting, that kind of rigid system, is going to fall under the social ratings thing. And that's already going on here in this country. Most people are not aware. But anyhow, Jason, pull us back on track here. So I'm not surprised at all, Lindsay, that China was very rigid and what I perceive to be drone mentality being taught. Yes. Obviously, this is a very oppressive society. They're, they're living under a uh, dictatorial communist government. Yes. They demand rigidity. They demand complete and utter subservience, to be blunt about it. And, of course, the social credit system is just another thing to keep the people in line. And sadly, the people seem to be going along with it. I mean, who knows what they may think inside, but you'll never, 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 never see anyone speaking out because they'll get taken away by the thought police. Yes. Well, I won't mention who in China had a conversation with me about that exact thing, because I said, you know, wow, your students are doing these really high level experiences and, and learnings. And that's impressive. I wish our students were capable of doing such high level work. And this person said, you have no idea how much we are lacking what America um, is really, really good at. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, creativity. And I was like, well, that's <laughs> that's probably a really good point. No free thinking. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that requires a bit of independent thought. And the very fact that social ratings exist, um, that's intended to crush independent thought. Uh, what that is meant to do is to make a herd mentality. As a matter of fact, in the research we did, it was actually called herd mentality that's driving that. But again, wow. all you people in the United States, there is a company in Silicon Valley right now replicating what was done in China. We reported not too long ago that the system we're referring to was ported into Darwin, hint, 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 uh, showing the future evolution of AI in the world. And I think, if I remember correctly, it's already being ported into Sydney, if that's correct. Anyhow. Well, if I can um, tie it back to when I think Jason had brought up the level of, that someone had to be at in eighth grade, you know, back in the day in this country in order to pass eighth grade was extremely high, higher than what we expect high school students to do now. And I actually found a book in my classroom a few years ago about grammar, and it was aimed at the middle school level, and it was definitely far, far beyond any of my students' abilities. And so I kept that to kind of remind me, like, how far we've really come at degrading our education. And um, speaking of China, I think a lot of people look at China and they say, well, look at their scores and their abilities, and they're much higher than us. They're doing so much better than the United States. So there's obviously something we're doing wrong. And I always want to remind people and clarify that, you know, when I was there, it was obvious. I was told when I was there, they don't hide it, that if you get to fifth grade and you can't pass the test, you're done. You don't go to middle school there. If you get to eighth grade and you don't pass the test, you're done. You don't go to high school there. So they're weeding people out at every level. If you have special needs, if you have disabilities, you're not included in education. So when we're looking at their test scores, we're only looking at their highest section of students, their highest performing students. And we're comparing that to all of our kids. We do well, everything. We teach everyone and we include all of their scores. All special ed scores are included. We don't take those out when we're comparing. So when people see that, it's really not a fair comparison. That's not surprising because they need what 
what really could be called a slave labor force because China's success, if you want to call it that today, is built off the fact that they are completely industrialized and are a giant factory for the rest of the world. Yes. So they need massive amounts of borderline slave labor to do those things to keep prices where these companies want them so they'll keep doing business. Well, in a way, it's a bit more of an open caste system, which people shouldn't roll their eyes. We have a caste system in the United States. It's just not admitted. Um, what, what you're looking at in the weeding out of people, like you can't pass this test, you're not going to the next level of school. Uh, this is in lockstep with China's stated ultimate goals, which one of them is the world grid, the world power grid. They want to be the owners and operators of the world power grid by 2030. Wow. They're already the leaders in artificial intelligence by their own statements, but there are places here that will back that up. Um, hard to know what, you know, what the big industries here are not telling us that they may be up to. Mm -hmm. But the point I would make is what you're seeing is the school aligning with the state goals. Um, so they're trying to get the best of the best. And I guess I bristle a little bit uh, at the idea that China's completely slave labor. I don't think I agree with that totally, but there is absolutely a caste system. And even at the upper levels, if you're very successful, say engineer or something, there's still an overarching idea um, that there are strict rules in society um, and you don't violate those and with social rating systems coming in uh, lord knows where this goes and it's absolutely going to be reflected in the schools i think uh wrong chen is one of the first places to get the social ratings mm. well i say borderline slave labor because prices in these industrial areas have to be kept to a certain standard or else for instance apple won't be having a zillion iphones made there right because the, the cost will be going up. And of course, they're getting paid. They're just not getting paid anywhere near to the degree that a European worker or an American worker would be. So maybe calling it slave labor is harsh, but that's kind of how I view it. I mean, you've seen horror stories about people committing suicide and things like that. Uh, who knows if that's actually true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, they had pictures of the dormitories, that people basically live at their jobs kind of thing. Boxcon, yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't be surprised, man. Well, you're looking at one of the lower castes. These are not skilled. See, this is what I'm talking about, the caste system. And that probably is not far off slave labor by, by a Western standard. But anyhow, uh, Lindsay, I wanted to ask, you've taught in, in you know, beyond grade school. Um, so many times during the course of this podcast, we've brought up books like 1984, Animal Farm, Lord of the Flies, and other things. So I'll ask you, are those still in the curriculum? And if so, at what grade level are those in the curriculum? So um, Animal Farm tends to be eighth or ninth grade. Lord of the Flies tends to be ninth, ninth maybe 10th grade. Um, and 1984 and Brave New World, I would say, would more be 11th and 12th grade. However, I'm the only teacher I've ever known that has taught 1984. I know other people do it. It's just never in any of the schools I've taught at, no one else is doing it. Um, or has done it. Um, and same with Brave New World. So um, I don't know how common they still are, but I know they're still around. Well, let me ask you this. So think about it. Jason and I run a podcast like we do here. Every title you just mentioned has come up in multiple episodes. As a matter of fact, they've been the basis. The actual books themselves have been the basis for some ep episodes. Isn't it kind of a tell when we're talking about the education system and they're teaching 1984? 
Animal Farm and Brave New World, which are all shown blueprints created in and around Tavistock and other places to show the kind of dim Orwellian future. Um, do you think there's intent behind that? I mean, why why aren't they, you know, why isn't it any other book that doesn't have to do with a dim dystopian future? Yeah. Well, I, I know my um, impetus in teaching those titles is to show students that um, the aspects of it that exist in our world today, so they can tr hopefully try to see that that is where we are headed if we don't change things. Not an instruction manual? Yeah. And I actually point out, you know, that exact sort of meme that has come up, like, this was a fictional work. Why, why are we making it a reality? But um, I also try to point out to them while we're reading it, the options that we have and the power that we have in resisting those types of um, structures and control structures. So my hope is that they will see it coming, you know, and a lot of them don't, but some of them really have been like, oh my God, our, our nation really is trying to control us in these ways. And, you know, this isn't a joke, like this is happening. Uh, it's well, not I, a conspiracy I, theory. So I, I look back to when I was in school, I think I did Animal Farm. I know I did Lord of the Flies, but I remember what followed Lord of the Flies and it was supposed to be about the symbolism, how this part of the book was supposed to be Jesus, and this part was supposed to be Satan, wow. and, all, and all this other stuff, which, sure, you know, it's important for young people to understand that there is an allegory, a symbolism, a metaphor, quite often in books. But, like, for myself, if I was a teacher, and I have my druthers, and I was, say, teaching Animal Farm, I would be harping all day long on the barn wall. Um, yes. Because that is a one-to-one -one real life example. And it's almost like these books are included in school so that at some point in the future, they can say, it's not like we didn't tell you all multiple times where we were headed. But you see, I've got to ask, when you get done with a book like Animal Farm, what kind of coverage on the back end? I mean, what is the curriculum interested in setting into that student's mind, having read such a text? So knowing other teachers in other classrooms, in the vast majority of teachers in classrooms, what would usually probably happen is you would read it, you would talk about exactly what you just said, the symbolism, the illusions that you can find, the sort of writing style. Um, you might do some writing practices to mimic that style. You might read some nonfiction that has some connection with it and do different analysis on nonfiction structure. And it would all be this sort of micro lens on some aspect of the text um, instead of the larger sort of thematic ideas that can come out of it and instead of sort of a look at our social place and how this book might reflect it um, you know or where we stand in that so in my classroom I focus a lot on pointing out bringing in as many nonfiction texts as I can to show the aspects of the novel that exist in our real world and then I try to do a lot of work around how could you have changed this? How could it have gone differently? Like what would the what would the animals, for example, needed what would they have needed to have done differently for things to have come out in a better way? Um, exactly. You know, so then I'm hopefully getting them to think like a, this is a correlation to our real world and B, you exist in the real world and it's your job to try to think about how you can affect it. I think China just fired you from teaching for them. Yeah. Lindsay. <laughs> sounds like you're inspiring independent thought. <laughs> I try. <laughs> well, I want to, I want to point something out. The first time that I, that animal farm was brought to my attention, which was probably in seventh grade, I don't know, maybe eighth, something like that. I had no clue the importance of the text. I thought it was just a clever story. Yeah. And what followed in the classroom didn't give me much more to go on. Um, and to me, that's such a critical part of education is because a young mind that understands there's a there there, 
will look. But if you don't understand there's something more to see here, then it just becomes clever stories. I mean, in the time that you taught, do you feel like you can see the level of education slipping over that period of time? In addition to that, Lindsay, obviously most kids, children, are going to be rebellious against anything a school system is going to teach because obviously you're making me do this. So they're going to have predominantly a negative viewpoint towards anything. So add that in with it. It's great that Crow in his youth recognized that there was something there. But I think it's pretty fair to say that a lot of kids are rebellious and be like, ah, stupid story. I don't care. You're just making me do this kind of thing. Yes. I mean, I have seen the educational level slipping um, more and more all of the time, and there's a million reasons why that's happening. Um, So we can't really blame one avenue. It's mostly the push for um, standardization and the way that curriculum is being um, micromanaged from the top down. Kids are rebelling at that age, and kids are disillusioned at that age, which is really a normal process given how really screwed up our society is and how little chance they have to truly connect to anything in a meaningful way. And so my tactic as a teacher was to capitalize on that and to sort of as much as possible point out that like, we're actually on the same side, you and I. So it's not me that you want to rebel against, but here is this thing that you might want to rebel against. Like here's, you know, even if you're teaching animal farm and say, here's this structure that is meant to be imposed on you. That's what you want to aim your rebellion at, because that's the real reason you feel disillusioned and detached. I like it. Would you say that your approach, which Honestly, remembering back to even to my high school days, it sounds like you were trying to really inspire the kids, get them to want to think for themselves a bit, get them to interact with you more instead of just sitting there with their mouths hanging open, thinking the whole time, I hate this, screw you, just want to get out of here. It sounds like you were actively trying to engage them and create a more positive environment, which, as I said, thinking back to my time, most teachers didn't. I had a few good teachers, the rest of them were boring at the best, and some of them I just now looking back as an adult, they weren't really that great of people. Yeah. (laughs) They had personality problems that, in my opinion, I would suggest a different career path. But I can say that at 46 years old and couldn't at 16 kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, when you're 16, you don't really understand what the problem is. But as an adult, I look around and I see that a lot of the people who are attracted to teaching, they're attracted to it for the worst possible reasons. They're attracted to it because they think it's easy. I'm here to tell you it's really, really not. No matter how you approach it, it's a difficult job, Um, even if you just slack off and don't care. They want it because they get the summers off, which is a small blessing, uh, but it's really not worth spending the other nine months of your life that stressed out for no reason. Um, And they do it because they don't even realize that they still are attracted to that high school mentality because in high school, we're trained to have this super hierarchical, you know, situation that's very um, false in a lot of ways. And people get, you know, sucked into that, like, identity in that system. um, And they never outgrow it. And so they go back to it looking for that to recreate it. And so they're just like you said, they're playing out these personality issues um, that are unresolved. And it's really unfortunate because the kids are the ones who are suffering for that. If you're not there to actually inspire um, and create as to the best of your ability, minds that can think, um, you're there for the wrong reasons, and it's going to harm you and everyone else involved. Well, unfortunately, it's going to perpetuate the system, too. Absolutely. There's another huge tell um, in the time that I've been alive, and that's the removal of uh, music and art classes and things like this. As an example, uh, I remember in some old Buddhist text I was reading, 
Um, one of the claims was you can tell whether you're in a more fortunate part of the world uh, by simple things like, is there water available? Are there trees? Just simple things like that. But as they got up into the cultural aspects, the apex concern of whether you were living in a fortunate part of the world is, is there art there? Mm-hmm. Um, which is ironic because when you look at a place like, say, Switzerland, which I don't think anyone can argue, they're a bit of the masters of the universe in Switzerland. Um, But that place is dominated by massive corporations and art. So when I was young, almost everyone had the shot to get into band, um, orchestra at some level. Every child was expected to at least try flute or violin or something at least once. The, the children who, who had the proclivity for that would, would carry it further. By the time I was in middle school, there was still electives of all the art and all the music. By the time I was in high school, it was still going strong. By the time I got out of high school, I watched those curriculums drop. And it wasn't just the art and the music. Uh, it was also a lot of the athletic Things. And I think that's a huge tell. And when you couple these, knowing these kinds of things have been pulled from curriculum and then harken back to the three books we just mentioned, which have been, as far as I know, in school curriculums as far back as we can remember, it's mm-hmm. telling a tale. We're looking at the long game in the education system, I mean, aren't we? There's always the excuse that there's not enough money for those things too, which is nonsense. You don't need that much money right. to teach art or even a simple music class. What did a single day of Iraq supposedly cost? You know, yeah. think, when you I look at any laughable. of those things, that's yeah. when you see the absurdity of it all. And that's kind of what I was getting at. The excuse that there's not enough money for simple programs like this, that this is your future generations, that should be the most important thing to you. Absolutely. Well, and the, one of the other excuses that is the most common excuse for not having as much creative ventures and art and music in the curriculum anymore is that we're, you know, we're pushing for this standardization, we're pushing for these standardized test scores. And if we need to prepare, if we need to prepare students to be able to score high enough on that test for our school to not be considered failing, which is all ridiculous nonsense that we can get into later, um, then we have to take out art and music because we need more time to prepare them for the test. That's our idea of how that should go. Um, But it's not realistic and it's not based on everything we know about how humans learn and the best ways to teach. They all are rich in creativity and art and music. And that, in fact, increases test scores most of the time in most students. And so if we wanted that, we would actually go the other way. But for some reason, common sense doesn't play a role here. It's just whatever narrative is pushed and everyone starts repeating it. And then that becomes policy. And now we're done. Well, it seems like the long game because I don't know how many years ago I I was made aware that there's one place and I think it's Texas. Don't know if I have that right, where all the textbooks for our country come from. Uh, It's one of the places that decides what goes out into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It looks like the long game all day long to me. Um, When we understand um, that art and things like, uh, look at history. We're all taught in school that the be all and end all period in history was the Renaissance, right? Even though I don't agree with that. The reason is, is look at all this art and all this independent creativity. So on the one hand, they're teaching these great periods of history for the exact reason we're complaining about here while they remove it from the current curriculum. But I've got to ask, um, while you were teaching, uh, one thing Jason and I have come back to a number of times is the removal of teaching children how to write in cursive, which would basically block that mind from reading anything pre I don't know, early 1900s. Um, Did you see the teaching of cursive or did you see not the teaching of cursive? 
I saw not the teaching of cursive. And I actually never thought about why until you, I heard you guys talk about it on your show. And that is an excellent point. All of those minds now can't read any of that handwritten script, which those are, those are primary source documents of, that are his historical value. <laughs> the, the constitution. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and even down to like regular people's journal entries or your grandmother's letters that she wrote to your mom or, you know, like there's there's so much content that they're going to miss out on because they can't read that. And all I thought about was that teaching cursive and being able to write in this way where your letters are connected is actually really good for your brain. And I can't remember exactly what it is, but there are studies about what it does for your brain. It helps you think in some way. It helps you think in new ways. It goes beyond just the ability to do it. Um, and it affects other areas of your thinking. So that's another interesting factor in considering why they would have taken that out. And all of it comes back to this idea, like we don't have enough time in the day and we need to prepare for this test. Think about the simple concept that a young person today who was not instructed in how to read cursive, not even write it, just even read it. And they're going through old things at their great-great-grandfather's place. And they find a letter from when he served in World War II, writing it to his wife-to-be, who is your great-great-grandmother. You couldn't even appreciate what that document is because it would have been written in cursive. Well, I think about 1984, they talk about, you know, they go to ask, uh, Winston goes to ask one of the proletariat, hey, do you, can you tell me about the past? And the guy can't even remember. Right. You can't even remember anything back then. So it's like they really their aim is to take away our memory, our own memories of our own histories. That's why you're taught about the barn wall and animal farm. It's why you're put in front of 1984. And it's why Brave New World is taught at the high school level. Um, I don't I don't think these things are questionable. And by the way, when you are brought up in a country like we were, where freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, these ideas of freedoms were pounded into our heads from the time we were old enough to get into school and now look at the age we're facing. A simple deductive reasoning mind can say, well, the Constitution, which is supposed to be a big deal in this country, that's, that's written in cursive. So you're telling me the founding document written in cursive um, is not recognized in the decisions to do things like remove cursive writing from the school curriculum? I'm not buying I'm not buying all day long. And the problem is, is we've become very short-sighted, but um, it's hard to blame people. You turn on the television now, and what passes for university education is some girl dancing on her couch getting an online degree, which is <laughs> going to become the new caste system. And, I mean, I'll ask you about that. What do, what do you think about the, the kind of uptick in this caste system where the only people going to Pepperdine or Harvard anymore are filthy rich and anyone else – shortly here, we'll be doing an online education. I mean, there's really no comparison there, is there? Well, it really gives the lie to the idea that anything is based on merit in our society. If somebody who is filthy rich, but not intelligent can get into some of the highest level schools and then really brilliant young people who are really poor can't, you know, or have much less of an opportunity to try. And for online education, I really, there's a lot of parts of it that I'm very excited for people because, for example, I think, Jason, your daughter is using some online components in her education. And I think that that can be a really good tool for people, especially people who are trying to break out of the system and homeschool and still get um, the skills and the materials that might help their, their kids kind of learn and be competitive in our unfortunate system. But it does rob people in general of the one of the components that makes learning engaging and makes it stick and helps you kind of internalize it is sharing it with someone else. Um, so discussion with other people, just like we're doing now, and even people listening are getting some of the same benefit. 
that's one of the things that helps people learn the best. And so if you're just looking at a computer screen and, you know, a lot of that will have to do with memorization and regurgitation too, you're not really going to internalize it as well. It's not going to be as good of an education. Well, it's almost like moving the social interactivity of an entire society a wipe away. When we get to the point where everyone's doing school online, um, mm-hmm. the social components of that will be completely removed. And we can all go on YouTube right now and look at the cesspool of comments, how people conduct themselves in the privacy of their own home as if mm-hmm. they had anonymity, not quite getting yet that AI is collecting it all and knows exactly who you are. Yeah. Um, my point being, um, that's a far cry from being a part of a class or you know a student body of some sort working for a common goal. And I'm not doing this to, to bolster up the idea, but I, I don't think there's any denying that if you go to a good university, that's a far cry from City College. And Mm -hmm. the people who do go to that good university, whether or not they've been indoctrinated, whether or not they've learned the things that are truly the highest reaches of the human intellect, truth is they're going to have an easier life. That's just the facts. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, their connections and networking alone are going to serve them well. Well, here's also another thing why you see a lot of incompetence with CEOs. You, You said before that only the filthy rich are going to go to these schools. Well, that's where all the networking is done at the higher levels. So even if, say, some rich guy who is very successful, some rich guy's son, is put through Princeton, Harvard, Yale, something like that, but the guy's kind of an idiot, still gets him through, gets his degree, and gets placed in a major company. But he's incompetent, and you see this over and over and over again. I saw this even in my own job life, especially the last one I was at. I could not believe the level of incompetence that I saw in what's called higher management. I was astounded. Mm-hmm. It is Jason, astounding. I got to relate. This relates one-to-one. Before I left for the for finally, before I said I would never work in the corporate world again, was 2008. It was right after the, the housing crash um, in the on the West Coast or the, the banking issues and all that that happened at the same time. I used to make online content for big corporations, some of them worth hundreds of millions of dollars doing their online websites, things like this. It got to the point where the majority of my money um, that I was making for these corporations, because I was being um, hired as an independent contractor to do something digital, was writing. And the reason was, is because all these people there with four years degrees couldn't even write. And so I would come in and I would get all these pretty good paying gigs just simply for designing a document or, you know, writing what's going to be on a website or something. And I was doing this in the midst of endless people with master's degrees and four-year degrees that couldn't carry the weight. And that's when I really began to realize something's broken here, man. Hey, the uh, what passes for journalists today, I'd swear these people aren't taught to proofread their own freaking work. I yeah. catch so much nonsense. I'm like, oh my God. I proofread my freaking texts before I send them out because I'm that uptight about portraying my intellect. I don't want to come off like I'm a retard, to be blunt about it. <laughs> and they're getting paid for that. I'm, I'm always like, how are you getting paid more than me to do, to do this? <laughs> and they suck. Yeah. Well, most of the time they're regurgitating, <laughs> but even when it's their own unique perspective, the grammar's wrong. It's spelling sometimes, but not as much because I'm sure they run spell checks. But it's like they're putting sentences together badly, clunky, and things like that. You wonder why we've got this massive 
upsurge in independent journalism, I guess you could call it, mm -hmm. where there's YouTubers or people writing articles. I, I have a very good friend of mine who writes articles all the time. And just because I'm very good at editing, I actually do him the favor of proofreading and contributing little bits here and there to his site. And it's called The Uncensored Truth. And it's mostly political, but you know what? It's a lot more open-minded than the nonsense that I see from quote-unquote official sources. I think the digital age is going to contribute to exactly what we're talking about in a big way because we're about to have generations of people who never existed before the internet, uh, at least in this go-around. And part of what that does is where I grew up uh, in a household where I learned my language from my parents and from my schools and things, most people are doing that online now. But you see, the thing about online language is it's been decimated. Mm -hmm. How many times do you see people writing LOL or OMG or some ridiculous thing that just gets said over and over and over? And on top of that, popular culture is now rap-centric, a lot of it for the younger people. So all the slang, like calling teeth, teeth is cool now. So <laughs> what's happening is the language is being decimated six ways to Sunday just because of the nature of digital communication, but also of culture, the parts of culture that are being held up. You know, I, I would dare say in another 20 years, um, you read stuff that's written by an average person and it will be a dim shadow of what came out of maybe a middle school 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, come on. This is by design, though. Right. There's no doubt about that. It's by design. I mean, we're we're starting to get to idiocracy level already. Yep. And you know what? In 20 years, we probably will be having a bunch of ding dongs sitting around watching Al my balls while they're jerking off. Literally, yeah. I mean, this is the infantilization of a of a people, you know. And one of the ways that people get through education without being able to do these basic skills is. Um, in their classrooms, they're not asked to do a lot of work in the classroom. They're asked to do it as homework. And because they feel like they have so much homework, they cheat on all of it. And so they're not actually practicing any of these skills. And their answers are always perfect because they cheated. So there's nothing to correct. And so, you know, a lot of people can actually skate through that way, never actually getting any of the skills because this it's just set up wrong. It's set up in a way that's very easy to to cheat. It seems intentional to me because these are not hard things to detect and these are not hard things to plan for. It's the same It's the same basic idea as saying we have the supposed important document that was written in cursive, but we're not teaching cursive anymore. Lindsay, now you taught for 10 years or so? I taught 10 years certified and I have a handful of teaching uh, experiences before that that I, I count, but uh, like a professional place would not count those years. Right, but you were still engaging on a societal level with the public. With education, yes. Yeah. So maybe like 14 years. Okay. Well, that's even better because now we're getting back into the early 2000s because you just mm -hmm. left this year. So right. you're almost as current as you could possibly be other than this new school year that just started. So mm -hmm. what did you see change over that period of time? Because now you're talking about the iPhone generation coming in because that yeah. was, if I remember correctly, 2007. And before that, you had to work at your phones a little more. I remember having a Motorola Razor and things like that, but you had to use those more. It wasn't anywhere near as, well, easy, if you want to call it that, the, the way the smartphones are now. Everything is very, very easy, and it's making people lazy, really. So you yeah. have that mentality now being set in. You actually still had to do things. So I'm very curious to see what you perceived as changes over the course of that time? Yeah. I mean, if I could summarize it, I would say that complacency and entitlement, both 
increased dramatically, just the sense that, you know, I don't need to work hard and you should, I should get everything I need handed to me anyway. And there's nothing kind of of value in me trying to change or grow. Those feelings um, and those behaviors have increased a crazy amount. I mean, it's almost, it's almost ubiquitous that every single student has that sort of mentality. You didn't see that before the smartphone generation came in? You see it, but it was more of like, you know, this is a, this is more of like this person's personality flaw, whereas now it's like this is almost like a universal trait we're creating or a set of traits. That's what I was afraid of and what I wanted to see if you actually saw that, because that's what I perceive. Yeah. I managed 20-somethings for a long time, and I'm now mm-hmm. in my 40s, so I saw many groups of 20-somethings come and go under me over the jobs I've worked over the past 20 odd years. So I saw it, but I wanted to get an educator's point of view because, you know, when someone starts getting into the age category that I am, it almost sounds like I'm being a bitter older guy, like, oh, these damn kids, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. No, I'm seeing differences because I have a very good memory, as anybody who listens to this show knows. And I can remember being that age. And sure, I was a dickhead like everyone else was at that age. But the entitlement thing, the way you said that, I like that a lot. That's kind of what I'm thinking is really the problem today. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of social engineering that comes with the digital side of the house, though. Go ahead, Lindsay. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. It is It is all coming from technology, um, even down to the, we're training kids to not engage with each other as well, right? Because we've got these smartphones and they provide everything you need. And so they're engaging in a digital way, but not in a meaningful way one-on-one. So when you are asking them to discuss with each other anything, I mean, they really don't know how. They're not, they don't understand how. And I've even seen that there are are less um, young people of this generation that are seeking out relationships, uh, romantic and sexual relationships. And part of part of us kind of might be like, well, good, you know, wait. But it's like, no, they're just not seeking them out in general, which is dangerous. You're supposed to be seeking them out. You're supposed to be learning how to interact with other humans in a socially um, appropriate way. And they're not doing this because they don't need to. They have porn and they have um, all the interaction they think they need digitally. And so there's no reason to. So it's another aspect of complacency, maybe. And then another part of the technological push to socialize them in ways that are very strange is that we have this um, dynamic that is intentionally, I think, pushed by media where students are supposed to hate the teacher. They're supposed to hate the teacher. They're supposed to hate school. They're supposed to not want to do well. They're supposed to feel controlled and oppressed by it. And all of those things are somewhat natural, unfortunately. Um, but the way that it's pushed so heavily, it's it's almost really difficult to get a student to see, you know, you still actually do need to become educated. And, you know, not every authority figure is your enemy, you know? <laughs> that's, that's right. If you don't learn to read, you can't educate yourself. If I had never learned how to read, I would not be who I am right now. But there's another aspect to this. And I don't know if we have time for it in hour one, but I just did some research on some very Jungian models of social engineering. And one of the things that was focused in on was the selfie. And it was pointed out that the selfie has been intentionally used and furthered and the platforms that host images all rewarding people who will engage in the selfie to turn the whole entirety of digital society into a narcissistic version of its former self. So let's jump into the narcissist idea. One of the claims being made is that the the big online platforms are fully aware of the psychological adversities that they're putting out there into the world and that things like selfies are known to create narcissism basically in society. So let's go at it. What do you think? Well, I think um, narcissism has some some traits that 
are shared with with sociopathy as well. And I think a lot of what we're doing when we're disconnecting kids, when we're when we're letting them engage only in this electronic environment, it's very impersonal. Um, when you do hurt someone online, it doesn't feel like it. Like we talked about earlier, when you're in the privacy of your own home and you feel anonymous, you're more likely to perhaps act in ways that are destructive without caring about the consequences of that. So there's a danger in narcissism, and there's also the danger of sociopathy that they're both increasing as we engage in these digital frontiers more and more. And something that highlights that that happened recently was in Canada. Did you guys hear about this young boy who was killed? No, I don't. I don't watch the news at all. So it's very disturbing. So what what seems to have happened was this kid was kind of bullied and ostracized, mostly online, um, and therefore that carried over into his school days. And so at school, he was also then ostracized and bullied. And some older kids kind of picked up on, you know, his ostracization. How do you say that? Ostracism. (laughs) Ostracism. Thank you. Maybe. (laughs) I'm not sure. I thought that was a big bird. I guess. (laughs) That's ostracism. (laughs) I I guess basically what they saw is his weakness. And so they plucked him up and they said, you know, you can tell any kid wants to be cool, wants to be accepted, especially a kid who's been bullied a lot. And this, you know, young man just didn't have the sense to understand that if an older group of kids is excited to hang out with you suddenly and you've been bullied your whole life, there's probably something going on. Um, But they brought him to their house. They gave him a bunch of drugs. He started overdosing. They recorded it from multiple cameras and multiple angles for hours instead of helping or doing anything to save this young man's life. And then they dumped him on the side of the road somewhere and he died. And this is terrifying. You know, I think it would have been more likely maybe back in the day that one person might do this to someone because one person was sociopathic or, you know, this is was a rare thing. And I just feel like things, experiences like this are becoming more common because something in there is detached like they are able to look at a human being and not have compassion let's let's back up two steps and look at some of the social engineering that's provided by the way i hope that's fake news i truly hope hope that's fake news um but i don't watch the news so i'm not going to make a call here but i'll point this out in the major information systems we have trends that are social trends some of them become good one of those trends recently was jackass and what Jackass does is exactly what could provide for people to become so callous. Um, after all, what what is going on in the tail of things like Jackass is people are being convinced to harm themselves or mm-hmm. harm others for a useless piece of footage that might garner them some temporary fame. And yet this is what the powerful corporate centers are pushing on television. It's a bit like that other show, Ridiculousness, or any number of things that I can point at that corporate America is putting front and center. To me, that's social engineering. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but that's intentional. Well, of course it is. And let's not forget that kids in general are jackasses. I mean, you you just are. You're a jackass when you're a kid, almost all across the board. Not to the level they are since they met Johnny Knoxville, I would add, but yeah. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Kids in general are jackasses. They're always going to be mean to each other. Even little kids, they're mean to each other. If they find something they can pick on you about, whether it's something as stupid as having glasses or red hair or whatever it happens to be, you're going to get picked on. That's just normal behavior. Mm -hmm. And normally it would toughen people up. It's full spectrum. I mean, if you look at it, think about back when we were young, the things that we thought were cool. Like maybe I thought Zeppelin was cool when I was a young person. Um, That pales in comparison to the amount of data that's coming at the young people now. And when you see something like a jackass and some 
idiot named Johnny Knoxville who's going to get kicked in the balls five times an episode and become the hero of young people and then be rewarded by Hollywood and put straight into a, fi a flick like Men in Black. To me, that's blatant wholesale social engineering, but propped up social engineering because it is riding the wave of culturalism, what's popular in culture. Yeah. So I think the genius in the system is to find these natural tendencies like that kids are jackasses or that there's some rebellion um, that you go through as an adolescent or that you do want to be um, recognized for yourself and and you want people to notice who you are and as an identity when you're that age. And so they capitalize on those natural tendencies, but they distort them and sort of invert them into something unnatural. It's easier to do if it's based on something that already exists. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and everybody knows when you're young, what everyone thinks is cool is way more than important than it really should be. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter because that's usually what wins the day. But anyhow, in closing here, I'll say, Mr. Knoxville, I have nothing personally against you, but you've done a lot of damage. And I think you owe an entire generation an apology, bud. I hope you hear this. Um, anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 175 to a close. When we pick up in the second hour, we're going to address a lot of things that we can't. By the way, ads were pulled on the hero's journey. The last episode up, they actually pulled ads, but I challenged it and they reinstated them. So go figure. Anyhow, there is now a shop button on crow777radio.com. That's not about making money. That's about getting the web address out into the world without censorship because of the rampant shadow banning that we face now. So we hope you'll join us all for the second hour of Crow 777 Radio, where we're going to delve further into education and basically the human mind in freefall in the 21st century. Join us all over at Crow 777radio.com, where free speech is the rule. Cheers. <laughs>